Hello, this is Dr. Nasir Gami, and you're listening to the Gami Psychiatry Podcast. Scientific, humanistic, and not the conventional wisdom. Hi, this is Dr. Nasir Gami, and welcome to the next episode of my podcast. Today, I'd like to talk to you about um, a concept that I recently published in an article called Symptomatic Versus Disease-Modifying Effects of Psychiatric Drugs. Um, this is published in Acta Psychiatrica Scandinavica. If you've been following me on Twitter, you've been seeing a conversation about it and based on uh, a lot of discussion on some websites about the content of this, this paper. So the, the uh, basic idea is that drugs consist of two types, symptomatic drugs and disease-modifying drugs. Symptomatic drugs are drugs which improve symptoms, as the name implies. That's like aspirin for a headache, Tylenol for a fever, uh, opiates for pain. These are all drugs which improve symptoms immediately, but do not otherwise treat any underlying disease that's causing those symptoms. In contrast, you have drugs which are disease-modifying. These drugs may or may not treat symptoms. They often don't but they get at the underlying disease process that's causing the symptoms. So these would be like statins, lipid-lowering drugs, which prevent heart attacks, or uh, antibiotics, which treat the uh, bacteria that may be causing an infection, or uh, anti-inflammatory medications for multiple sclerosis, which get at the inflammatory uh, changes that uh, cause demyelinate, demyelination, which is the problem that happens to the sheath covering neurons in that disease, which leads them to be harmed. Uh, these or chemotherapies, which get at the tumor itself that causes uh, the symptoms of cancer. These are disease-modifying treatments. Uh, another example, antihypertensive drugs, which improve blood pressure and thereby prevent stroke. So think about it. Antihypertensive drugs don't treat any symptoms. You don't have any symptoms of high blood pressure. Now, it's true 50 years ago, high blood pressure wasn't diagnosed unless somebody had symptoms. A person would have a headache or dizziness, and then the diagnosis was made. The blood pressure cuff had been available for many years, so people knew that a person's blood pressure was high but the diagnosis of hypertension as an illness was not made unless symptoms were present. Uh, This is why Franklin Roosevelt had very high blood pressures for years, assiduously documented by his doctors, often 200 over 100 uh, or higher, and normally should be 120 over 80 or less. And then he had no symptoms until the severe headache that he had on the day that he died of a stroke. Um, It was cases like those that convinced doctors that you had to treat hypertension by treating the numbers on the blood pressure cuff and not waiting for symptoms. This is an important point in psychiatry because there are many people who oppose the concept of psychiatric disease or mental illness, and they just refuse to make any diagnoses or they refuse to make it unless the symptoms are severe. In fact, in the DSM system, the official diagnostic manual, In almost every case for diagnosis, you have to have severe symptoms and severe functional impairment. Well, if you did that in all of medicine, we would never diagnose cancer and high blood pressure and 
high cholesterol and heart disease unless people had very severe symptoms when they were on the edge of death. This would be considered highly unethical, not to mention unscientific. And that's the case with psychiatric diagnosis. It is in a way, it's clearly unscientific and you might claim it's unethical when you refuse to diagnose mild symptoms. And in fact, we should be diagnosing diseases when there are no symptoms, including psychiatric diseases. There are some in which there are many periods of remission where there are no symptoms, as in manic depressive illness, and yet the diagnosis can and should be made. But the point about hypertension is that in the 1950s, doctors realized that the antihypertensive medications that were being developed by the drug companies at that time should be given when the blood pressure readings were high without waiting for any symptoms to occur, even mild symptoms. And then other studies found that when these antihypertensive drugs were given ahead of time before symptoms, when the blood pressure was high, you could prevent stroke in the future and thereby reduce mortality or death. That's the example of antihypertensive drugs as disease-modifying treatments. Another example of disease-modifying medications is lipid-lowering drugs, the statins like Lipitor, atorvastatin, other statins, now widely used in cardiovascular disease. When you give these medications, you reduce the cholesterol in your body, which reduces the plaque that's formed, which prevents the heart attack, which keeps you alive. And lipid-lowering drugs have been shown to prevent heart attacks, reduce the frequency of myocardial infarctions, and reduce mortality, prevent death. In fact, these days, if you want to bring a new medication to the market for hypertension or uh, cholesterol reduction, it's not enough to show that these drugs actually affect the numbers of cholesterol or blood pressure. You have to show that they prevent heart attack or stroke, that they have some effect on the process of the disease, the course of the disease. So uh, with that as background, what I wrote was that disease modification means you have a medication that improves the course of the disease, not that treats the current symptoms, but that improves the long-term course of the disease. For instance, reducing the number of heart attacks, reducing the number of strokes, and ideally decreasing mortality, reducing long-term death rates from the disease. Um, you will notice, by the way, that you do not need to know the cause or the etiology of the disease to have a disease-modifying drug. We don't know the cause of high blood pressure, we don't know the cause of high cholesterol in most people. We don't know the cause of epilepsy. We don't know the cause of migraine. We don't know the cause of Crohn's disease. We don't know the cause of ulcerative colitis. We don't know the etiology of multiple sclerosis. But we can treat many of those medications and prevent the disease from progressing even without knowing the cause or etiology. This is a common error among many people in psychiatry and the mental health professions. One of the most common responses I get to this claim that we should be using medications to modify diseases is that we don't know the causes of our diseases. It doesn't matter. We don't need to know the causes of our diseases. It's sufficient to know some about something about the pathogenesis, about the process of the disease biologically. We don't know the ultimate cause of cardiovascular disease, but we know that the process involves narrowing of coronary arteries, which can happen either by high blood pressure or by high cholesterol. So those are places you can intervene in the disease process. Now, in the case of psychiatry, what I claimed in my paper was that almost all of our medications are symptomatic and not disease-modifying. Most of our medications are just improving symptoms. That's why we give 
when you have depressive symptoms, antidepressants, anxiety symptoms, anti-anxiety drugs, poor concentration and attention, so-called stimulants or amphetamines, uh, delusions and hallucinations, antipsychotic drugs, uh, trouble with sleeping, sedating drugs, anti-insomnia drugs. These are all symptomatic treatments. That's the majority of the medications in psychiatry. They don't get at the underlying causes of those symptoms. You may or may not agree with me uh, in my stating this fact simply right now on this podcast, but in the paper I provide references and details about that claim. Uh, and in the notes of the podcast, I'll, I'll provide the reference to the paper where you can find that information. The exception I made was for manic depressive illness, which means bipolar illness and recurrent severe unipolar depression, what these days is called major depressive disorder or part of major depressive disorder, not the whole thing. In the past, manic depressive illness meant recurrent severe mood episodes of any kind, depressive or manic, so bipolar or unipolar types. And um, this disease can be prevented, the episodes can be prevented and have been proven to be prevented with lithium and to some extent with other mood stabilizers, specifically lamotrigine, lamictal, valproate, depakote, and carbamazepine, tegretol. <clears throat> so I would argue that those medications are all disease modifying for manic depressive illness. They are not just symptomatic medications. They don't just make the symptoms better when you're depressed, you're less depressed. When you're manic, you're less manic. They actually treat the overall disease process so that you have less episodes over time. And in some people, there are no episodes over time so that the person is completely cured of the illness as long as they're treated. Furthermore, lithium has been shown to prevent suicide and to reduce mortality in manic depressive illness. <clears throat> so, it is similar in that sense to some of the disease-modifying medications and cardiovascular illness that we described earlier. And that contrasts with other psychiatric medications which have not been proven to prevent suicide in randomized trials. I know people will cite epidemiological studies claiming that antidepressants prevent suicide, but those there are studies for and against that uh, observation. And epidemiological studies are observational, which means there are many other factors that could influence the results that are not controlled in the studies, and therefore they are not definitive. This is why we do randomized trials, because they are more definitive, and the process of randomization controls for other potential confounding factors. All that being said, antidepressants do not have consistent evidence of robust prevention of suicide. In fact, there's some evidence they may increase it, especially in children and young adults, in terms of suicidal thoughts and attempts. Similarly, antipsychotics have not been shown to prevent suicide. People often will cite clozapine. Clozapine has been shown to prevent suicide attempts, but not completed suicide in randomized trials. Again, epidemiologic data provide evidence that it may prevent completed suicide, and that may be the case, but it is not as well proven as with lithium. And certainly none of the other antipsychotics have been shown to prevent suicide. People may say antipsychotics are disease modifying for schizophrenia actually I would argue otherwise. I provide some evidence for that in my article. My claim is that they have not been shown to improve the course of schizophrenia. Schizophrenia involves chronic delusions and hallucinations with a long-term worsening course. This has not been improved with antipsychotics. What antipsychotics have been shown to do is to improve 
psychotic symptoms when you are in an acute psychotic exacerbation, meaning when you have current psychotic symptoms that are severe, the symptoms will get better when you take antipsychotics, but they don't go away completely and they don't go away forever or even for a long time. Rather, the patient returns to his chronic psychotic baseline. So the disease process itself isn't affected clinically, but rather just the acute symptoms. The second aspect of disease modification, besides the clinical part, which is to improve the course of illness, as I've discussed, is to affect the pathogenesis biologically. And, you know, you might say, well, antipsychotics are dopamine blockers, and that's part of the pathophysiology of schizophrenia. Not really. The dopamine hypothesis of schizophrenia has been more or less debunked. It is not part of the cause of schizophrenia. It is not part of the pathogenesis of schizophrenia, meaning the intermediate steps that ultimately lead to the symptoms. It's actually the final step, the last step, before people have delusions and hallucinations is that they might have some increased activity of the dopamine system, which you then control with the anti-dopamine drugs. But that's the last step of a very long neurodevelopmental process, which we know is genetic in origin and which actually is present before birth and continues throughout childhood and adolescence before the first clinical symptoms arise in late adolescence and early young adulthood. And we know from a lot of research in schizophrenia, a very extensive amount of research, that this neurodevelopmental pathogenesis does not involve the dopamine system primarily, but seems to involve other systems such as the glutamate system, which are not affected by our antipsychotic medications in general. And uh, in contrast, for instance, there's also a lot of research on manic depressive illness. And a lot of people will say, oh, we don't have enough knowledge about the pathophysiology or uh, etiology of manic depression to say these drugs are disease modifying. Actually, we do. I suggest you read about the 1,000 pages of the textbook Manic Depressive Illness by Goodwin and Jameson, second edition, 2007, that I was involved with too. There's a, uh, almost 1,000 pages there, I believe of lots and lots of pathophysiology. We know a lot about the process of how manic depressive illness comes about. And again, it's genetic, it starts early in life, it goes throughout childhood, adolescence, before the first clinical symptoms arise in late adolescence, early adulthood. The process seems to involve circadian rhythm abnormalities in part. Some of the genetics that are re related relate to the clock gene, for instance, which affects circadian rhythms. And there's good biological research, for instance, that lithium actually influences the clock gene uh, positively and thereby may be affecting the pathogenesis of the disease. There are other mechanisms by which lithium may be affecting the pathogenesis of the disease that I won't get into right now, but that involve its many effects on second messengers, which are thought to be related uh, to the occurrence of episodes of the illness over time. Uh, so... Uh, in summary, I described that our drugs are either symptomatic or disease modifying, and that most of our psychiatric drugs are the former, and that the mood stabilizers are the latter. And I argue that we should be using the mood stabilizers more, not just for bipolar illness, but for unipolar depression for the long-term course of the illness, and that we should be working harder on developing newer drugs that are disease modifying and not just symptomatic. Drugs like ketamine, psychedelic drugs, I consider them basically uh, minor improvements, nothing approaching a major transformation. It's like having 50 variants of aspirin, and you're just giving me two or three better types of aspirin. That's not going to transform the field.
Now, in some of the internet, um, <clears throat> some of the internet discussions, um, I want to clarify. Some people seem to think that I'm just saying all of our psychiatric drugs are not useful. That's not true. I'm saying that if they're symptomatic, we should be using them knowingly as symptomatic drugs, which means more short-term and at lower doses, not long-term. Some people are claiming that I'm saying we shouldn't be using psychiatric drugs long-term. Not at all. I believe in using as many drugs as we can long-term if they are effective, which means that if they are disease-modifying drugs, we should use them long-term, like the mood stabilizers, like lithium, which I strongly recommend be used much more than it is now. I even support using symptomatic drugs long-term if needed, like antipsychotics for schizophrenia, realizing that what we are doing there is symptom suppression, not disease modification. We're not changing the course of schizophrenia. We're not getting rid of it. We are just reducing the severity of the psychotic symptoms and doing so long-term because if you don't, the uh, untreated nature of schizophrenia is so severe uh, that the, uh, the um, consequences are worse than if you suppress the symptoms with any psychotics long-term, including the side effects of those drugs long-term in most people. Now, of course, there will be exceptions, but I think the research is there that in most people, the benefits outweigh the risks. So I'm not opposing our clinical practice approach right now. I'm just interpreting it as reflecting symptom suppression and not disease modification. So those are some of the points I wanted to make uh, on this topic. And uh, as I think um, I have mentioned here and there, I will be having uh, other articles coming out soon on related topics, which I'll also discuss in future podcasts. Thanks for your attention. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I hope you liked it and we'll catch you next time.